Mary arrives home before dusk, just as Lemuel is leaving, and Grape's watchmen are shepherding women indoors for their own safety before the curfew begins. Lem meets her on the doorstep, and as the purple light bathes his shaved face and clean breeches, she is aware of how bedraggled she must look by comparison. Torn skirt and muddy boots, her hair a snarled bird's nest. She doesn't need to sniff at her clothes to know that the stench of shit and blood that draws the flies belongs to her. She must look a harpy, one of those sea monsters he's always claiming to have seen. Part woman, part bird, the personification of storm winds with the power to blow men off course. Didn't she do just that with Stephen Adams, with the only weapon in her arsenal, her status as a midwife, sanctified by the church? And Mercy's baby, when it slipped into her waiting hands, small but wriggling, didn't the power surge through her, awakening her senses? Didn't she shout in triumph and then cry, for mercy and her little girl's sake? for the victory, however slight, of life over death. And yet her husband is looking at her with lips pursed as if he cannot recognise her under all the muck. She suppresses the sudden urge to berate him. If she starts, who knows where it might end. If she opens her mouth, everything she has locked away for fear of offending him will be given voice. She could lose it all. Children, house, income. He has the power to snatch her life away. And yet, in this moment, she really could not care. All she desires is to tell him how she feels, to speak and be heard. Heat arcs through her body, and her hands and legs tremble with the effort of controlling herself. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Today I'm talking to Lauren Chater about her new book, Gulliver's Wife. Lauren, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thank you for having me. Lauren, as I read Gulliver's Wife, I found myself really getting caught up in the story as if Lemuel Gulliver was a real person. Separating fact from fiction became a kind of grey area in my mind. Did you ever feel that you were dealing with the lives of real people as you were writing? Yeah, I did. I think uh, it took a a few drafts for the characters to really come to life for me. And so when I first start writing, they're sort of very, very light sketches. And then as I go through the drafts, I fill them in and they become sort of colourful. But Lemuel himself has obviously always been uh, a character um, that I was sort of, I thought I knew because I'd read Gulliver's Travels as a child. And then uh, I reread it a few years ago, which is where the initial inspiration came from um, for me to write Gulliver's Wife. Uh, so certainly, yeah, the characters did become very real to me. Um, and also, Mary is a midwife, and I based a lot of her character on real midwives. Uh, that I researched from that time period, 17th century um, midwifery. And so she's a sort of a conglomeration of a bunch of different midwives that I read about and was inspired to write about. Your previous book, The Lace Weaver, uh, is set in the 1940s in Estonia. Gulliver's Wife, uh, along with your next book, The Winter Dress, uh, both set in 17th or 18th century, mostly Europe. Mm. What's the fascination with historical fiction 
what freedoms or restrictions does that genre allow you? Uh, I think like any genre, it has its good points and bad points. <laughs> it has uh, constraints. But the great thing about historical fiction, I think, is that it offers a scaffolding for us to build a story around. Um, I try to find interesting um, angles uh, to history that people haven't written as much about. And so um, with The Lace Weaver, that was, of course, the invasion of Estonia by the Soviet army um, and then the Nazis. And so there's not a huge amount written about that in um, Western literature. For Gulliver's Wife, it was the 17th century midwives that I really wanted to to illuminate their lives. I suppose creating an authentic sense of reality is the whole purpose of historical fiction. Any kind of fiction is an unreality in a way. Uh, And so I guess it's finding that balance between what is authentic and believable and what you're trying to say with the story and then reshaping that so that it, it has a, a kind of structure that modern readers can connect with and understand. Your writing deals almost exclusively with stories about women or, or women's experience in different historical settings. Was the telling or retelling of Gulliver's Travels a natural consequence of this preoccupation? Um, it's a really good question. I think, yes, when I initially got the idea for um, Gulliver's Wife, I had been working in my local library and I decided that I would read all the books in a section titled 1001 Books Before You Die. <laughs> You've got to read these books. It's quite a task. I know. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get through them. Um, but I reread Gulliver's. But as I was rereading it, I was drawn to this idea of what his, his wife might have been like because he doesn't talk a lot about his family and he travels from home. You know, there are four lands that he visits in the story, but uh, he doesn't really think about his family and they're sort of left behind to just cope however they will. And so I found myself sort of fascinated by this idea of uh, this woman who was left behind to care for hearth and home and what life might have been like for her, how did she survive? And so she kind of became this symbol of, I suppose, all women in that time period, trying to explore how they would have how they would have survived. Was it difficult to convince yourself or your publisher or other people of the idea? No, my publisher loved it straight away, actually. Um, so I pitched it to her as, as an idea. I had written, I think, a couple of chapters initially, but they were completely different by the end of the first draft I went back and changed everything anyway I think people are fascinated by the classics reading them requires a different kind of mindset to the way that we read novels these days but the characters are enduring for a reason and uh, yeah people seem to be fascinated by this idea of who was Gulliver's wife when I think about the stories that I love um, a lot of them are about the untold side of female experience Um, one of the best books I read in the last couple of years was Pat Barker's The Silence of the Girls and it was about uh, the Trojan women and their story from of the war from their perspective and I loved that book and I think that was one of the books that I was reading when I was um, finishing off the drafts for Gulliver's and it was sort of an inspiration. Hmm. I did wonder as I was reading how this book might have been received close to the time that it uh, in which it was set is that something you thought about? I just wonder whether it would have been rejected or whether Jonathan Swift himself could have written this book. <laughs> um, Jonathan Swift had a very interesting relationship with women, <laughs> so um, I'm not sure that he would have approved. 
um, it certainly wouldn't have been accepted. You know, women weren't accepted as, as writers until the 19th century and, and 20th century. Even the 19th century, they were using pseudonyms in order to be published. Um, there's always been this perception that men are the uh, male artists are the ones that have something to say and that women's experience is not as um, not as valued and so that was yeah in a way one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book was to highlight that women's domestic roles and the important work that they did in the community um, was just as valuable as what men contributed to society. Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels has been the subject of quite a lot of academic analysis, interpretation and reinterpretation. And misogyny, for instance, has been identified as one of the main themes, along with misanthropy, just general hatred of mankind. And it is also a a parody of travelogues of the time. Uh, Were those things something you thought about as you were conceiving the idea for the book? Um, definitely. I certainly read a lot of uh, literary criticism about Gulliver as I was um, writing the book. Uh, I think that the idea that um, the Lilliputians were the English and that that was, the, that was an allegory for their small-mindedness and their cruelty, I think, um, was something that I really tried to work into the book because it echoes um, that power struggle that uh, is going on within Mary's family between her and Gulliver. Um, and their daughter, Bess. The idea that Gulliver is a misogynist, it was something that was in the back of my mind as I was as I was writing the book. And so Gulliver's character is perhaps not, you know, the character that people will remember from Gulliver's Travels. But you have to remember that in um, Gulliver's Travels, it's in first person. And so it's his perspective. So this is Mary's perspective, and it's um, completely different in that sense. Have you considered Gulliver's wife might be a new way of looking at Gulliver's travels, not as satire or parody, but something much more tangential, an interpretation that lies somewhere between, as you were saying, allegory and and parable, perhaps? Yeah, that's a a really good um, way of looking at it. I'd be very happy if people (laughs) sort of made that interpretation of it. Um, At the time when I was writing it, my intention was just to tell these women's stories as as clearly as possible and to follow their characters. Um, And so I tried to let go of what I wanted the book to be and just let it be the way that it wanted to be written because I always find that if I'm holding onto it too tight, it just, it's almost like a stranglehold and and it sounds like I'm shouting and uh, it's sort of didactic. But yeah, it is, I think, a, a bit of a parable about female power in that time period and also um, female strength in in overcoming these sort of patriarchal systems that uh, women had to work within at that time. I don't think it was possible for women to overcome um, their sort of their station and things like that but they were able to subvert um, the narrative, their own narrative in small ways. There's a strong sense of emancipation through the novel as well, particularly with Mary. Is that something you wanted to really underline or, as you said, just a natural consequence of you letting go of the story? Yeah, I think I just kind of uh, let go of it in in the initial drafts, but uh, certainly in subsequent drafts I wanted Mary to to have this idea that she she could be free in her own way and without giving the ending away, um, wanted to make it realistic 
because I don't like that sort of revisionist idea of history. I don't think that sits well in literature, especially in historical uh, literature. But I think that there were ways that women could resist uh, and some small ways of doing that were just to perform their duties in, in the best way that they could and had to help each other. Another thing that really drew me to the book was the language that you've used in Gulliver's Wife. It's extraordinarily convincing and evocative of, of both the time and the setting. It's quite an immersive experience too in that sense. Why or when did you decide to adopt the language and syntax of the time? I think it was always sort of a conscious choice. I wanted it to sound to sound authentic but without being completely inaccessible to modern readers. I think it's really important to try and give the flavour of the time period that you're writing about. You know, so I did a lot of research into the customs and the language and especially um, in England, language is really important because there are lots of different uh, regions and everyone has their own kind of accent. But it was more the language of, of the story and uh, the sort of the themes of birth and death and this um, echoing that... Um, birth reflects this change of identity for Mary and the other women as well. So I wanted to hopefully reflect that with the kind of language around, and there's lots of stuff in there I know about birth and customs and uh, folklore and that sort of thing. So I wanted to put that in. All of that's very strong. At, at times I thought I could smell the streets of Wapping where yes, it's set. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. And the childbirth scenes, nice. from a male perspective, are quite confronting. Quite gr- visceral. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But also... I appreciated the natural quality of them and the, the sense that you didn't shy away from those, the grittiness of the setting, the people and the story. Thank you. It also made me think what a fascinating language English is and I learned yeah. so many new words in the process <laughs> of reading your book. Let me mention a, a couple. Tupping, that's something i would never heard before. Yeah. I think it actually refers mainly to sheep. Oh, yeah. But um, I'll leave the listeners to explore the meaning of that one. <laughs> Probably a good idea. A clout. I've always thought yes. of that as a special kind of nail with a large head. Yeah. No. But no, it's a kind of rag. Yes, a yes. kind of rag. Um, uh, hopefully clean, yeah. certainly for the purposes that Mary employs it. Yes. Um, egg. Mm. A fever. A fever. Yeah. Mm. And march pain. That was fascinating too. Yes. I, I wonder if um, just from the sound of it, people might be able to juice what we call it today. Mm. <laughs> um, it was. I did a lot of um, research into that, into the cookbooks and that sort of thing at the time. So that was where that came from. And one last one. This is fascinating to me. That donkey milk is the closest thing to breast milk. Is that actually true? It is true, um, and I think it's amazing. <laughs> so my my mother is a midwife, actually. So I, I had to double check with her. <laughs> So I'm wondering if this is going to set off the use of donkey milk by uh, wet nurses, for example. Yeah, we'll have to see. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but Does it yeah. smell like donkeys? Uh, it's No, it doesn't smell. It just smells like milk. Um, there were all sorts of things that women used back then to try and nourish children and babies. You know, the, the mortality rate was so high that uh, you would do anything that you could, I think, to uh, try and give your child the best chance to survive. And Mary certainly does that right through the story. She's a bit of a hero, really, isn't she? Yeah, I think she's a bit of a hero. But I I also think that she's just a woman, <laughs> in a sense, um, if a woman can be just a woman. She's like 
any woman has dreams and aspirations and goals and also juggles a whole lot of different competing priorities, which I think um, hopefully women, modern women, will identify with. And really she's just trying to survive and, and yeah. ensure the survival of her family. I really came to despise Lemuel Gulliver. Did you? Uh, at the end of the book. And really? And also his friend uh, Peter Williams or oh, yes. Piet Williams. Piet, yes. Yeah, he, he was quite um, an awful character to write about. But I think you, you kind of have more empathy for Gulliver in a sense. I don't know whether maybe you do. He's, he's weak, but he's not evil, if you know what I mean. Yeah, so it's interesting that we think of him as this strange kind of hero. Yeah. And in fact, you've portrayed him as this rather deranged, drunken, possibly drug-addicted fellow who is riddled with weakness and mm. unable to cement his place in society. Yeah. Well, I think you get that sense, though, that Gulliver is a bit like that. Like, at the end of Gulliver's Travels, you know, he's mad and he's talking to his horses and he he can't survive in English society. Um, you do wonder whether all of the stories that he's come up with are just the the consequence of opium addiction and that these are just sort of the rantings of a madman. Yeah, I wanted to leave that sense there that you didn't really know whether he was mad or whether it was the opium or whether, you know, he had actually been. So, And, and there's a strong sense of doubt amongst the people around yeah. him whether it actually happened. Yeah. Which is interesting because it didn't really happen. Yeah, well, it did. And also because in that time period, you know, anything was possible. It was like right at the start of the uh, scientific age, the age of sail. And so people were sailing off to the East Indies and the West Indies and finding mermaids and fairies and um, sea monsters, you know, and they, they genuinely believed in those things. And so it was a time of wonder and, and magic and people would have believed in some of the things that he said. Interesting contrast too between the fantasy aspect with the reality of life in Wapping, which yeah. seems really ugly. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, And I think men, uh, some men of course, were able to just go to sea and leave that behind. Not that being at sea would have been an easy job, but it certainly would have been a lot more relaxing. You know, there were months where they just had nothing to do and they just sat around and talked. Uh, and meanwhile, the women back home were trying to keep the children fed, trying to keep the roof over the kids' heads. And it's just, they're survivors, as you say. But, uh, but I don't think they really had a choice. Options for women's work were extremely limited. They could uh, sell groceries or they could sell their bodies, um, which came with its own problems, of course. They were barred from working in a lot of trades. Uh, the guilds were male-dominated and they weren't allowed to be part of the guilds. Um, and so really midwifery was one of the only trades for women to be able to take up. Even to become a midwife, you had to pay for an apprenticeship uh, you had to pay for a license and then you had to train properly. And so, uh, yeah, the, the options for women were extremely um, limited. And I, I felt for Mary and, and some of her, her friends. And certainly the poorer women just had, they would have had no, no chance. Well, congratulations on the book, Lauren. Thanks for joining me on the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thank you for having me. Gulliver's Wife by Lauren Chader is published by Simon & Schuster and it's available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening.